0: Welcome to another episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me. Today, an interview with Jess Echeveri. Let me welcome Jess Echeveri to Ordinary Old Catholic Me, where we talk about the ordinary, extraordinary experiences of people who are in the Catholic faith and in faith in general. And uh, I want to welcome you because we're going to be talking about the most wonderful uh, book that I read now twice. Uh, (laughs) In fact, there's a, there's a uh, chapter that you call unpeeling the layers Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of layers in this book and uh, it's called dazzled finding the key to perfect forgiveness. And it was written with Patty McGuire Armstrong yes and we're going to we're going to talk about your story basically we all have stories but everybody's story is a little different it's unique just as we are unique in the eyes of god in in, in his creation so what i'd like to start with is first tell me what the title means just generally dazzled
1: I am dazzled by God. Obviously, the the title came from a quote by Saint Augustine or Augustine, depending on what part of the country you're living in. And it's um, in my deepest wound, I saw Your glory, Lord, and it dazzled me. And I came across that quote uh, later on in my in my healing journey, and it just really resonated with the work you know that God did in my heart and in my life and in my healing. And it, it just rang so true to me that it was going into my wounds and accompanying Jesus there. I found him in my wounds, letting him redeem them that I saw the glory of God. And so when I read that quote, I thought, wow, you know, St. Augustine just hits the nail on the head with that one for me personally.
0: As you said, you found it later in your journey. So that's, what we're going to talk about is a little bit, not everything, because we want people to read this great story about you uh, and about really about all of us, about how God's work and how forgiveness all work into our lives.
1: Yes, it's I've experienced and I say now I've been allowed to experience a lot. It started with the divorce of my parents when I was really young. I was less than a year, two years old. So I grew up in a home that was, in a sense, for lack of a better word, broken. The family structure was broken. Then um, experiencing step-parents, multiple step-parents, and having that brokenness in in the home. Then at the age of 10, I was molested. And at the age of 12, I was raped. And so by the time I was 14 years old, I had become very rebellious, a runaway. That's when I started running away from home and acting out. And my parents had no idea. They had no idea what experience I had had. And so they didn't know that there was really anything wrong. So it was just, you know, a young kid starting to rebel. You know, at 14, we hear, oh, it's a rebellious teenager now. And so they just thought that that's what rebellious teenagers do.
0: Faith-based home, or was it sort of a more of a secular religious, non-religious home?
1: It was a secular home growing up. Um I found out later that my my mom and my dad were very religious when they got married. Had my my older brother and even when I was born, but there were problems in that marriage, which is why they separated and divorced. And after that, in my conscious years and, and you know in my memories, there was not we we never went to church. There we didn't really pray. We didn't talk about God. I would describe it definitely as a secular home. I have an uncle who has been a practicing Christian his entire life, growing up, hanging out with my cousins. um, That was where I would hear all about, you know, a lot about God. So that would be my exposure to that. I also, my Nana, I was very close with my father's mother, She was a Catholic but fell away from the church after she got a a divorce, I think in the in the 40s or 50s. And so she fell away from the church. But I do remember growing up being being in her home. She was a very faithful woman. There was a time where I was walking through the hall in her house and there was the, uh, the velvet painting of Jesus in the sacred heart. His heart was velvet. And I remember as like a little girl just walking down the hall, running my hands along the wall and hitting that velvet heart. Right. And stopping and looking and staring into Jesus's eyes and going, wow, your heart's really soft. You know, it's like those little, you know, experiences like that, where I did encounter Jesus, it just wasn't something that was taught or a part of, um, the formation of growing up.
0: What it- says to me is that all along the way, and we're not aware of it, we're just not aware of it as, as life is happening, good, bad, or indifferent, is that God is sort of sending us little messages. I think there's a phrase for it or a word for it called locutions. Tell me more.
1: Yes. yes. I'm, I'm in a lot of pain. I'm acting out. I'm angry. Um, I start running away and I end up where I'm no longer living in, in, in the home. I'm now at a grandparent's home.
0: Because what of, part of the country were you in at this point?
1: Uh, I, I was in Florida. And um, so I was living with my grandparents. I had a boyfriend in high school and I ended up becoming pregnant at 16. That news did not resonate very well with my family. And it was expected of me to have an abortion in order for me to continue being in the home that I was in or have a home really within the family. And so I tried, I went to the abortion clinic three times on my lunch break in high school. Um, my friend took me and each time I went, I got a little bit closer and closer. And then finally I was laying on the table in the gown and the nurse comes in and she's telling me she she's gonna put this medicine in my arm It's gonna make me a little sleepy. And I just mm-hmm. got hit with this warm rush over me and I just knew I had to get out of there. And so I said, no, and I got up and I left and and I didn't go back. Actually, my friend, Said I know where I'm taking you, (laughs) and she took me to a pro-life pregnancy clinic. She said, "Here, you can go talk to these people. They'll probably be able to help you." And I remember walking in and and just not knowing what to expect and not really knowing the depth of the situation I was in. Like it's like I knew I've like even growing up and in school, there were girls that got pregnant and left school. Like I've heard the rumors. I didn't know what that really meant. I didn't know what the truth to that was. And now it was me. So. I knew that it happened and I knew that it was now happening to me, but I just I didn't understand the depth of it. So I spoke with the the woman there, very kind. She brought me into a room, comfortable couch. There was a TV. She, you know, she asked me if she could play a video for me about other girls who were in my situation. And I said, yes. And the video came on and I, you know, I remember seeing these girls and they're speaking softly and some of them are holding their babies and some of them are no longer pregnant and some of them are pregnant. Like I was thinking, okay, and then it goes, the video went into, this is your, this is what's happening inside your body. When that happened, that's when the, the reality of what was going on in my life really hit me. Like, wait, this is going to become a baby. It's going to become a person separate yeah. and apart from me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even know if I even went that far at that moment. Right, it, was just, right. it was no longer something that I didn't know. Now I knew, right. It was that kind of awareness and realization. And that's what the pregnancy clinic did for me. They gave me a bunch of pamphlets that honestly, I don't remember what I did with, but I went home and I said, you know, I I can't, I'm not getting the abortion. And that left me with really no support from my family at the time, because they just didn't understand. And they had things that they were going through in their lives. And so I ended up not having a place to live. You know, I, I ended up being in a situation where now I needed to find a place because I had to be out of my grandparents' home. My boyfriend at the time found a place to rent for me. And so I ended up renting a room, which turned out to be in what was a crack and prostitution house. Oh dear. Um, nowadays they call it a trap house, but, um, uh, mm-hmm it's, you know, where they run drugs through and there's prostitution. And, and so I had a, my own room in the back of one of those houses. And it was just, it was hell. It was just hell being there. And I ended up calling my mom in the middle of the night, just crying and telling her that I couldn't be there anymore. I told her what I was experiencing. And of course she was horrified, you know, and she's like, I'm coming to get you right now. And she came and she got me and she found for me a Christian home for unwed mothers. So I ended up living there and gave birth to my first child. Um, I was a 16 uh, son, my son, Brandon, but the home was more centered on releasing your child for adoption. They didn't support and resources for, for you to keep your child. So I released him for adoption thinking that was my only option. And within the first two weeks, my boyfriend's family, you know, was like, no, we made a mistake. We'll take him. Don't give him to somebody else. So we ended up getting him back and I drove him. I took him over to their home. They took custody of him and they raised him. I was unable to, but after leaving the home, you know, that night, that was my first legitimate night as being homeless. And so I spent the next um, it was about four years on and off in um in a transient state, I like to say. You know, there's so many different aspects of being homeless a homeless person is somebody who's sleeping on their best friend's couch. You know, it's like, if you don't have a home of your own, you're homeless. You're homeless. Right. Um, <laughs> and in that there was, you know, me being in a shelter. A lot of people might be familiar with them. Covenant house. There was a covenant house. Oh, yes. teens. Mm-hmm. I was in and out of that shelter. And I actually ended up becoming friends with a group of homeless teenagers, just like myself, who had been doing this a lot longer than I had any experience in. And they kind of took me underneath their wing and kind of, you know, they showed me the ropes. This is how you survive out here. That was a really traumatic time for me as well, because unfortunately a lot of that survival involved gravely sinful things, you know, that I witnessed that I personally experienced. And I ended up coming out of homelessness by moving in with a boyfriend. And from having that place to live with the boyfriend, to having a job and then being able to have a car and eventually move myself. So by the time I was a little bit older, I was able to pull myself out of homelessness slowly through, you know, living with somebody else.
0: But things didn't yet settle down completely. You still had so many other, let's call it experiences, traumatic sometimes experiences that continued to happen in your life.
1: Yes, no, absolutely. And, um, and when I describe, trauma, which again, like you said in the beginning, like I've had so many different experiences of trauma, it, it goes hand in hand that someone who has a first experience with trauma, usually if they don't get the help that they need, will continue to have traumatic experiences. And so that's what was happening to me is, you know, my first, you know, incidents of trauma led to then the situation of me being in this environment now where more trauma can happen. And that's what happened. I, I did end up becoming pregnant at 18 and I just, when I became pregnant at 18, I just went completely numb and I, I just, I, I didn't know what to do. You know, the voices in my head and even from the people around me were like, you know, you already had a kid and you couldn't raise that one. What makes you think you can raise this one? I wasn't stable yet. I didn't have my own place. I was living off of people still and trying to, you know, survive myself. And so I was convinced that the best thing I could do for this child was to have an abortion. And I believe that lie. And i it's interesting because the first time you didn't believe the
0: lie. And then the second time you did, usually it's kind of a reverse when I don't say, I don't know what usually is, but It often is reversed where the first time you do it, the second time you say, no, I'm not going to. Do you have any idea why that difference occurred for you? Why for you, the second time you were willing to do that, which you were so unwilling to do the first time?
1: The attack that was on me was very strong. Now, looking back, I can say this. I didn't know this at the time, but the attack from the devil, from Satan, was very strong on me. He was constantly in my ear, telling me all the things that weren't true. And the environment of trauma that I was in didn't fight back against that. Like I didn't know how I didn't have any spiritual weapons to be able to fight against that attack. So when you don't have those spiritual weapons that I have now that I know the truth about, you have no weapons to fight. You become a victim of the attack or you join it, right? You join the army, And so I didn't have that. So it all felt like the right thing to do because I didn't have answers to having this child. I couldn't provide a home for it. I didn't have a steady means of income, you know, and then the devil coming in. And on top of that, attacking my motherhood already because of what happened with my first pregnancy and my first child, it just made it all so believable. The opposite of the truth.
0: Did you wonder and maybe
1: you didn't, you were still only
0: 18. I mean, you've had enough experience for a 75 year old at this point. It ever occurred to
1: you to ask, where are you God? You know, I, I don't ever recall asking that. As a matter of fact, in my heart, I didn't want God. I, I, I honestly believed because I did have that experience going to my uncles and being in their church every once in a while, you know, with my cousins and my family, I did know that he existed. I knew that my uncle loved him and his family, right? And they worshiped him and that was their life, which looked so different than what I was living. And I honestly thought if you exist, how could you allow any of this to happen to me? So if you did exist, I I don't want any part of you. You know, that was, that was my feeling. That means you just, you're like, you're a participant in this then you're not saving me or helping me. And I don't want any part of a God that, that does that.
0: What happened after the abortion? And because your life again changed, yes. it, it, it seems like it, it just shifted again. And your life is one of those that shifts on a dime, it, it seems. <laughs> yeah,
1: that is a great way to explain that. Thank you. I'm going to have to use that. <laughs> <laughs> My life shifts on a dime. <laughs> Woo. So, so, what true. happened? What happened next? What happened next? Okay, so yeah, so I had the abortion. And I I obviously fell into a very deep depression. I wasn't able to really function. And I ended up and then my actually my Nana passed away very shortly after um, who I was very close with. And that's when I really started to go downhill. Um, I reached out to my my mom again, um, my saving grace. I reached out to her because I was in a relationship that was extremely abusive and I was pretty much beaten half to death and so she arranged for me to move to the other side of the country to California in order to keep me safe and to hopefully you know create this new environment for me so I can change my life around your and- mother
0: is an interesting is an interesting figure in, in your life because she's kind of as we're talking now and I guess as I experienced it reading the book is a bit kind of a, well, like all human beings, she's a contradictory figure. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she was at one level unable to give you what you needed and had a coldness about her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, when you did reach out to her, she did step in at moments that you most needed it, which is now explains to me why you dedicate this book to your, parents absolutely. and uh, you know that that you have you have a recognition today of despite the failings the moments that saved you because of her and because of him
1: absolutely and mm-hmm. and, and when i do speak to people i always want to include that part of it because if you just read the beginning part of my story and and you create an opinion about my parents you can come away with a really negative opinion and yes, that's not, and that's not the truth and, and and the truth is is that just like every single one of us are my parents were suffering from whatever wounds they were carrying around but i know in the depths of my soul that my parents are fantastic people and that i i don't doubt them ever not loving me. Right. Like I know that they loved me. If we don't know the fullness of that truth and we're giving people the only love we know, then that's all that I'm supposed to expect. So that's how I explained the situation with my parents is that they did the best that they could with what they knew and what they had and what they were dealing with. And I never once felt like my parents didn't love me. But there were aspects of their parenting that that were lacking that did affect certain parts of my life, especially as a Catholic Christian. You know, we have an understanding on suffering that a lot of people just have a hard time grasping. And I remember when I became a Catholic and I started learning about the suffering of Christ on the cross, I really identified with that the suffering of him in Gethsemane, the suffering of, of his passion and execution, the, the scourging and the crown of thorns. Like, here is this good guy, right? This good guy who's suffering the worst of everything. So when I learned that, I was like, wait a minute, I'm a good person. You know, I didn't go out and do bad things. When I was little, I was a good girl, you know, and I look back on my life and I see and I suffered too. So what that did for me and my Catholic identity was it united me with him. It made me feel like, oh, yeah, I am blessed with the suffering because that makes me more like Jesus. So I have no ill will. I have no anger. I ha- I think my parents are the greatest people on earth because I know as a Catholic that whatever the decisions that were made, however it turned out, it's all for the greater good of the person who serves and loves Christ in his glory. So but it didn't. I, I-, I will say, though, but it took me a long, a long time, time It would have to take a long time because one of the things I've
0: noticed as I've been more active in my faith over the last many years is that how often we Catholics will know and understand the theology of suffering, Mm -hmm. which is at the center of our faith. And yet, how often do we say, why does he let me suffer like this? (laughs) exactly it's complete it's like talking about double think it's uh it's like you you, okay we're not getting it still not getting it never getting it right and uh, and so so it's it's that you even are at this point and we we haven't actually finished your story but (laughs) but 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 that you came to this point of Finding the key to perfect forgiveness. None of us are ever going to be perfect at our forgiveness. Only God is perfect at forgiveness, yeah, really. Yeah. But but, uh, but that you are, you're able to actually recognize that in that suffering. When you tell people, you know, you're closest to the Lord when you're suffering, most people go, <laughs> you, yeah, don't that's be that's telling that. me
1: that. Yes, that's <laughs> not what I need to hear right now. Yeah, yeah I, did, absolutely. I, I find it um, very powerful and, and very awesome. Um, of God where I spent my whole life before I truly knew him became a Christian and and a Catholic Christian telling him, you know, I didn't want any of this suffering. I was asking that question that you just said. It's like, why is this happening to me? Why do I have to suffer like this? It's one thing after another. But then when I became a Catholic and I learned about the suffering of Christ, now it's thank God for my suffering. You know that I don't ask that question anymore because he gave wow. the answer. So I spent my whole life asking him this one question, and now if I sit down and and I and I look at the truth, the truth is he's answered it for me. Here's why: because I did. Because this is where where I'm drawing you to. You know, would you have made your way to me if this weren't to happen? And that's really the 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 biggest thing you have to ask yourself. And anything that anybody's going through right now is. Is this what I'm going through helping me go to him, right? Is he drawing me to him in this? And you, you, you know, it's hard to ask that when you're in the middle of some type of wound or suffering, but it's definitely something to reflect on, on past wounds and past sufferings. And it's what I try and share with people. It's, you know, to redeem the wound, to make the suffering like his own. And that's holy, holy so let 's get back a little bit you 're in California now know.
0: <laughs> at the uh-huh. age of eighteen <laughs>
1: <laughs> the age of eighteen and i 'm you know pretty beaten up, pretty battered physically and emotionally and spiritually, and I attempt suicide. I am staying with very amazing people who really care for me and i 'm hard to reach and just in a state of depression. And I realized I'm, I'm done. That's it. Mm-hmm. I, I want it all to end. Um. And so I ended up swallowing a half a bottle of whiskey and about eight bottles of pills, prescription pills that I saw on the counter. That was one of, you know, that the person who lived there, I didn't know what they were, didn't care. I just didn't care. Like, it's, this is, it's eventually going to work. So, and so I did that. And I, the only thing that I remember from that incident was doing that. And then I remember, briefly coming out of this state that I had fallen into this unconsciousness and the woman who what you know who, who cared for me I was in her home was kind of it, I was laying flat on the living room floor and she was over me kind of like smacking my face oh, woke up to her smacking my face and saying don't you die on me and and then I went out so it was I, I had that memory and then the next memory that I have is I'm in the hospital room and I wake up and I'm alive. And then I'm upset. Like Mm. I, I, I am extremely angry that they saved me because I know that they saved me because of that one flash. You know what I mean? I know I was unconscious. I know I was leaving and going somewhere, but I know that they saved me. And that really infuriated me. And I, and I left, I said, that's it. I'm going home. I went back to Florida, ended up falling into the same, you know, crowd. You always have the same people in those traumatic environments. And I ended up going back into those environments, ended up attempting suicide for a second time. And I got in my car at like late, three o'clock in the morning. And I drove down this alley and this, this street in Florida that, you know, before it was built up, it ended in a swamp, basically. It's, you know, just heading out as far west as you can go. And it ends up in a swamp. And I just knew, I was like, I'm either gonna swerve and hit a pole. And I took my seatbelt off, you know, put, put the foot on the gas got it over a hundred miles per hour, you know, crying my eyes out. And I'm like, this is it. And I'm either going to end up in that swamp and die, or I'm going to swerve off and hit a pole and kill myself. And, and that's when I heard my Nana's voice to me who, who had passed. And it was just, it was very simple. It was just a very soft voice of hers. It was just kind of like, everything's going to be okay. Stop. Everything is going to be fine. I I started to cry. I took my foot off the pedal. I knew I couldn't complete it because it was my Nana. That was the voice that I heard. And she was the one person and not of everybody that I trusted. Right. So I know that God allowed me in that moment of just desperation, you know, my crying and doing this was my crying out to God. I, the words didn't literally come out of my mouth, but in my heart, that's what my heart was desiring. I didn't want to die. I just didn't want to have any more pain anymore. And I, and I do truly believe that God heard that cry of my heart and allowed me to hear my Nana speak to me because he knows that I trust her and that I'm going to do whatever she says, you know, and I did, it worked. I, I I didn't have any answers. I didn't know how everything was going to be okay but I was inclined to believe her because it was my Nana and I love she her. was
0: your, she was your intercessor in a sense. She yes. was, yes. she was, uh, it's funny. And she's the one who had the picture, the velvet picture of uh, our <laughs> Lord. Yes. It, it just, it, you know, I'm just making these connections now. Uh, as I said, we all make these connections later on in life. They mean nothing while we're living through them. That's so, crazy. you know, that's, it, it was such a gift because In that impulsive moment, anything could have happened.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: The worst and the best in one second or less nanosecond with God's grace saved your life.
1: Yes. She saved my life. She saved my soul. She saved me from, you know, having to experience a a life eternally without God, because she knew at that moment that that's not where that I was. She was my intercessory, as you said, and and she always kind of has been since her death. You know, the grace that comes through intercessory prayer, that that was a grace that I was able to receive specifically from her and and her prayers for me. Uh, I ended up kind of pulling myself together. I I, I came out of that that situation because it was my Nana and I felt like she'd spoken to me feeling very much happier than I than I previously was a little bit lighter on my feet, so to speak, you know, that. (laughs) all right, she's in heaven. She's telling me that everything's going to be fine. I've got something to look forward to a little bit here. So that kind of pushed me into the next um, turn of the page, so to speak, of, of my life. I ended up becoming more stable. I started working. I moved in with another boyfriend. He ended up being abusive. I had to get a restraining order against him. And I ended up with the apartment. So that was how I ended up being finally on my own for the first time in my own apartment but I was also now pregnant again. And so now this pregnancy, my third pregnancy, I was adamant. There's, I'm not getting an abortion. I'm not giving this baby away. I, This one is mine. Nobody's taking it. Nobody's touching it. That's it. And so I was very adamant. That was my mind frame for that pregnancy. And it was really just work hard mode, just Plug away, work, 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 save, save, save. I was dirt poor. I was on welfare. Um, I was alone and pregnant. And, but I didn't care. I didn't care because I knew this child was coming and I knew I was bringing it home with me. I ended up giving birth to uh, my third child, a daughter, my daughter Vanessa. And I was so poor, I didn't even have a car seat. <laughs> wow. I didn't, I didn't even have a car. I, I went home from the hospital. Um, in a donated car seat because there was a women's guild at the hospital who did that for poverty stricken mothers. And so I had a donated car seat and I took my daughter home for the first time from the hospital in the backseat of a taxi cab. And, but I was, listen, I was the happiest mom that ever lived at that moment. My third child in, and it's my first one coming home with me. How old were you at this point? Um, At this point, 21, I believe. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. 21. Barely legal. <laughs> You've yeah.
0: you had... I I, it, I, don't know that I've ever talked to anyone who had packed this much stuff, <laughs> life stuff, in in their few years. It's astounding. And so I, I don't want to give away the entirety of uh, of your book, okay. So, which we're on the edge of doing. Uh, but no, we're not, because there's so much... There's so much, as I, as I said, packed in here, uh, that, mm-hmm. that you want to linger over. Yeah. So, so at some point the big stuff, really big things changed. You met somebody.
1: I did. I did. I met my now husband. I, we are complete opposites. We'll just say that, right. Um, we come from completely different backgrounds. I mean, the fact that we even crashed into each other <laughs> is how I call it. Um, <laughs> Again, was, I think, a grace from the intercessory prayer of my Nana. I've, I've always felt like I should be, you know, when I pray prayers of Thanksgiving, I pray for that. You know, I know that she prayed for that to happen. And I've always felt like he was sent from her. Um, I met him and he was just different. He was he came from a home with, you know, a mom and a dad been married their whole lives. He had, a, you know, one sibling. It was like a normal home. And I, I'd, I'd never really experienced that before. And so I was very intrigued with who he was and what they did and how they thought about things. And he was very educated and he loved to share. I, my nickname for him is my encyclopedias. You know, I would always like any question I would ask him, he could answer. He was just this big mystery to me. And I, And just, he, was come, he was from a Catholic family too, right? was catholic yes he was born and raised catholic from a a catholic family i just in all honesty i just i i fell madly in love with him and just didn't want to leave his side (laughs) this is way too much fun i'm like i you're you you're sharing with me things that i've never experienced before so he was that something different in my life and we you know he fell in love we we courted for five years we moved out to california um, for a job transfer of his. And we were married in the Catholic church. They, he gave me two ultimatums, right. When, in order for us to, for me to become his wife, for us to be married and for us to make a home together, it was number one, we need to get married in the Catholic church. He was a Catholic, but he was a Catholic by culture at that time. Um, and the second was, um, our children need to have a Catholic education. And if you ask him now why those two things were important to him, he would honestly he would look at you and be like, I have no idea why I, you know, why that came out. But the answer is because his parents laid that foundation in his heart, that truth, that good foundation. These are the things that you want to pass on to your family too, was in there. And he was just responding to that being in there.
0: And that's something that I actually can say I share with you in that uh, my mother was a cultural Catholic Mm -hmm. and my father was a non-practicing Greek Orthodox. And when they got married in in those days, in the rectory of the Catholic Church, because you couldn't have a mixed marriage in the church in those days, Mm -hmm. my mother said the same thing to my father, that I was to be raised in the Catholic Church. And although they didn't practice anything at all, basically, during all the years I was raised, maybe once in a blue moon, my mother went to church with me. It, it laid the groundwork all through my life, including the 13 years that I was away from the church, lapsed, a lapsed Catholic. Yeah. So how powerful you think that doesn't matter. But it again, again, the, 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 the magical, if you will aspect of God, the providential (laughs) part that, you know, again, you don't think a thing about it. And then suddenly you realize the powerful aspect in your life. Now, had you continued to, did you see your other children, Vanessa and Brandon?
1: I did not see Brandon. um, No, not after I moved to California and um, Vanessa, we, you know, she, she came to live with us out in California. Um, Wonderful. mm Wonderful. So, so we, so we were raising her. She was actually so little at the time that I met him. He eventually adopted her. Uh, um, so, yeah, so he did that. And, um, and then we ended up in our marriage having two more sons. So we have five children total, two within the sacrament of our marriage. Um, but yeah, we moved out here and, he, you know, th- his non-negotiables. Right. And so, and I, of course I agreed to it. I would have agreed to anything at that point. Like, just please don't leave me. You're just so amazing, you know?
0: <laughs> and that's the other thing. He didn't run away. That's the the magic of, of this moment in your life was that you found
1: someone who didn't run away and didn't try to hurt you. Right. Which was key, which was very key, which is what I was used to. And I think that's a part of the difference in him that I was so drawn to in our marriage. I brought to our marriage, all of the trauma that, that I've experienced, you know, he brought, he brought to our marriage, all of the formation that he had in his experiences, which was an intact family who loved and worshiped God, you know, and, and the graces and fruits that come from that. So in the beginning of our marriage, yes, there was, you know, it was this back and forth where I'm screaming and yelling and saying, I'm leaving. And he's, calm and looking at me like what do you mean like you you don't leave (laughs) like you you vowed to be with me until death do us part like you don't leave the person that you are now 50 percent a part of like you're the other half of me we became one flesh this is the first time in my life I am hearing any of this stuff and again it's just another part of the the draw to him was that he would say things I've never heard before and when he would say them, he'd say them in a way that was so beautiful and so passionate. And it, it just, it sounded like they were so true, you know, like they had to be true. And that's what I was drawn to. Cause he, he, he communicated them to me in great love and patience. You know, it wasn't like, why are you screaming at me? Stop screaming at me. It was like, wait a minute, you're screaming because you're sad or you're upset. And I, you know, you don't have to scream at me. I love you. I'm not ever going to leave you.
0: In the book, you talk about the Catholic Church providing, I love this phrase, guardrails. And in a way, you're also talking about your husband having provided guardrails, which you did not have at any point in earlier in your life. So how, how would you say the play of your husband and the church sort of have worked into your healing and your forgiveness?
1: oh they're absolutely vital my husband and the church are the are the foundation i i went on a search you know uh, so I, so i marry him and i'm feeling all these feelings and i'm feeling like my life is becoming better and I, and i'm just a better person and i'm having these wonderful experiences and so now i'm starting to search for that emptiness that i'm still feeling why am i still feeling this emptiness where is this power that the, the, that the world keeps telling me I have, because I'm still struggling with what happened to me. It's just, just now my environment is no longer traumatic, right? So now it's being held up against what I know is traumatic is no longer traumatic. So now I have to figure out which one of those people I am, you know, am I this person who lives in trauma constantly, or am I this person who has this new life who is living in happiness and healing? And so in that journey, I ended up at a and many therapists actually Um, ended up seeking therapy and counseling. I did that for seven years and it was my last therapist um, that I do talk about in the book who helped me really take the traumatic experiences of post-traumatic stress um, disorder and process them in a way where it opened me up now to look beyond my trauma. And when that happened, I knew there was more. It's like, okay, I feel like I've gotten to a point now in my life where the trauma I'm no longer a slave to, the wounds are no longer in control of me. Now I have more control. I'm functioning as a mom. I have my bouts of questioning stuff and, and all of that, and there's still something missing. Um, so I went searching for it. I, I got into, you know, I started reading about Buddhism and, and – A lot of the new age, different spiritualities. And I ended up going and worshiping at the self-realization temple here in Pacific Palisades, which, because I was doing what the world told me I was searching for. And that's the power within me, right? The power that I'm looking for, the, the, the love, the happiness, the peace, it's all in me. And that's where I need to go to find it. So I took this, this dive inward, and ended up there. And I had an experience in the new age temple personally with Jesus Christ. And in that experience, he was basically saying, you know, what you're looking for is me. It's a person, you know, and it's me. I'm the one you're searching for. And that was when that was, <laughs> I, it that changed everything for me. It was like, wait a minute. I'm, I don't have inside of me what I'm looking for. I'm looking for Jesus. And that's when I realized, wait a minute, my husband's Catholic and they tell me all the time that they have Jesus in that church. Right, in the Eucharist, which it's, I always
0: met, I always mention all the time Yeah, yeah right. on this program. Yes, yes.
1: You know how many right. times as a non-Catholic, I've heard a Catholic say, that's Jesus. That's what? Okay, you know, and kind of look at him crazy. So that came back to me. It's like, oh, wait a mm-hmm. minute. Are constantly talking about Jesus is in their church. Oh, the light Mm -hmm. candles lit. Jesus is here. So I decide at this point, I'm going to go into the Catholic Church, not to become a member yet, but I'm going to start going to Mass and I'm going to start looking for him there. And it was at that point where I started asking my husband a million questions. You know, why is he wearing a green dress? Why can (laughs) I? Why, why are you lighting the place up and with smoke little stuff like that? I would, I would see something and I would inquire about it. You know, what is that? I want the cookie. Is that, can I have the cookie or can I not have the cookie? You know, it's like, no, that's not a cookie, you know? And so he would be in this position now to explain to me all of the different truths and and aspects of practicing the Catholic faith, but he didn't have all the answers. And- well, one day since you mentioned that he has a podcast we'll have to talk to him
0: yes. about <laughs> his experience of of interacting with you and how it affected his relationship with the church which had been more culturally catholic as you said so that yeah there is there's a story i want to hear too That's definitely <laughs> worth listening to <laughs> so again this this transformation this this god allows for another transformation but this one is more of a i guess a transfiguration you're right. starting to actually yeah you know this everything is starting to come together and and become clear mm-hmm. and no longer just in parable form <laughs> right
1: exactly exactly and i do end up converting into the i do end up coming into the church um but i end up coming into the church really as a non-believer i came in for You know, I always say God is frugal. He uses everything, you know, to get us to him. And, you know, what he used was my desire to be the same as my husband and children were. Right. I wanted to be Catholic like them. And also just I I knew that Jesus was there. And my sponsor at the time when I was coming into the church asked me, do you love Jesus? Yes. Do you trust God? Yes. Then you just have to go and you have to trust and you have to listen and follow you know, if this is where he's calling you to. So I really came into the Catholic church. I mean, my two biggest things that I didn't believe in was confession, which is pretty funny. And um, and I thought you guys really, really loved Mary too much. Those are my two biggest right. things. So, right. so I came into the Catholic church, not adhering and believing and fully understanding and, and you know, I'm convinced of of all the teachings and what they Of are.
0: course, that's, that's, I think that's very common. And I think even Catholics already, present in the Catholic church, people who are presumably what we call cradle Catholics. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how little we understand sometimes of our own faith. You know, when you talk about Mary, I, as a Catholic myself growing up, I had no great affection for Mary, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and I'm only now with my later years beginning to understand just what a role she had. And that i've always known we didn't worship her people never people say you worship mary like she's a god but she's not she's just a human person who was willing to cooperate with god in a way that was profound and that's what we we're not worshiping we're just saying wow if we could be like her Mm -hmm. if we could have that kind of relationship with with god the father god the son god the holy spirit Mm -hmm. our lives would be perfect but we we don't and so she's there as a as a as a perfect model as perfect as a human being can be because she was born without sin right so you know god's gift to her so Mm -hmm. that you know but anyway the point is you you're not unusual in that because catholics themselves right now sitting in the pews haven't got a clue that's That's just the way it is and that's (laughs) why we have to be constantly catechized as to what our faith teaches
1: absolutely Absolutely. And that's what I began to realize becoming a Catholic with that truth was that not a lot of Catholics really knew either, because I would, you know, ask and inquire. And I really didn't get a lot of answers. My husband, you know, he, he supplied a lot of the faith formation for me in the beginning. And then God put me in a situation where I ended up having to teach Sunday school at a Catholic church. And I just thought, what a great sense of God must have really enjoyed that time with me because here I am you know, and this was before I came into the Catholic church. It was right before I came into the Catholic church where it's like, you know, I want you to teach these kids about God. Well, they're Catholic. I'm not Catholic. That's okay. Do you know and love God? Yeah. Then just teach them about Jesus. But in my heart, I'm like, but don't Catholic kids need to know what Catholics believe about Jesus? Yes, of course. (laughs) And so there I went. I went into research mode. Like, what do what should I teach Catholic kids about Jesus? And so all and then I became the teacher and I teach for year. I taught for years and I even opened different, you know, preschool programs and different parishes. So it was this God. That's how I learned about the faith. I learned it like a child.
0: I don't want to, you know, because we're, we could, boy, I could talk to you for about seven hours. Yeah. Uh, where would you say, and I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like everything became perfect after all of this, because I know that you had struggles in your marriage. Who right. doesn't? Well, I'm not married, so I couldn't tell you, but, <laughs> but, but you have struggles. You have struggles if you're single too, by the way. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you, you started on a road that you're still on right now, but it's, it looks a lot different than it did when you were very young and things looked like they weren't going to ever end well.
1: Yes. No. I mean, coming into the church allowed me many, many graces to really learn about the key is the, the, the dignity of the human person. That's really the key to all of this, you know, understanding when I started learning more about my faith I'd only, I'd only ever heard the words human dignity in a Catholic, Catholic environment only after I became a Catholic, it wasn't something that I heard. And even then as a Catholic, I only heard it in like a class syllabus or as a part of a seminar or a particular educational series. It wasn't something that regular Catholics would just speak about and, you know, openly like over a cup of coffee or anything. I started to become more and more interested in learning that obviously, you know, John Paul the the great theology of the body and and all of his great writings on that helped me and really brought to focus to me that foundational piece. And that foundational piece is we are all created in the image of God. In that creation by God, for him is our dignity as a human person. And that when I realized that about myself. I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm this little piece of God. Like I am a part of God. And that makes me amazing. And I carry this thing called dignity and that's my value. Right. And it's worth so much because it's only a worth that God under God knows and understands. Right. And when I realized that I thought, well, wait a minute, I'm no better than this person next to me. I'm no better than this person handing me my food. I'm no better than this person who's upset at me right now yelling at me like we are all we all have that as a gift from god and so i realized the hard truth which is if i'm gonna apply that belief to myself i have to apply that to everybody else i encounter too and that led me into this journey into that perfect forgiveness that i talk about in the title of my book
0: there's a quote i think it's at page 54 that i like i liked a lot of things i make little notes (laughs) and you can see i did that here um he said here, I think it's on page 54. He said, I've been on both sides of the rules. The crisis in our culture today is because people do not have the fullness of faith. They do not know the rules. And even if they do, many are not following them. But the rules are a gift from God because he loves us. And because he understands fully, because he created us, our worth, our dignity. That's right. So that, that's, that's, that's pretty amazing.
1: So what are you doing these days? Well, these days I, you know, you're, you're holding my book, which is available now. It took me a few years to, to put that together. So that was released last August and, um, and is available on Amazon and on my website. So that's dazzled finding the key to perfect forgiveness. I also started, um, at the beginning of Advent, my first podcast, um, it's called divine wisdom from the kitchen. And it's basically just me spouting out a bunch of what I call mamalies. (laughs) If you're familiar that, you know, my husband is a a permanent deacon and in the archdiocese. And so that's right. So he, you know, in, in that formation program, they taught them homiletics, which is, so you do momiletics. And I was like, wait a minute. I do, you know, we were talking about it and I was like, I don't do homilies, but in, in my house, standing in my kitchen with the wooden spoon in my hand, sometimes <laughs> I certainly <laughs> give a good momaly every now and then. <laughs> and so, and so, and that was his idea. He was like, you should, you know, you should just give little momalies. And so I started during the Advent season. Um, I did it based on, you know, the four beautiful words, you know, the peace and love and hope and faith and all that for Advent. And I I'm on a break right now, but I'm coming back for Lent and I'm actually going to be doing a six week Lenten podcast series based on the finding the key to perfect forgiveness. So in the epilogue of my book, I share, you know, the journey the four different phases of the journey that God walked me through on my path to perfect forgiveness of my rapist and my molester and the people who harmed me. And so I'm going to be discussing that in a six week series. One each at a time with a little, you know, the first week will be kind of, this is what to expect a little summary, um, telling a few stories. And then the next four weeks will be based on those four different phases
0: which are
1: denial, acknowledgement,
0: acceptance, and forgiveness of ourselves. And finally, that important one we've been talking about as well, the dignity of the human person and perfect forgiveness. Okay. So, that, so that's a lot you're going to be talking about. Boy, you're going to have a yeah. lot of people listening.
1: <laughs> well, I hope so, you know, for, all from the glory of God. And really just to give, you know, People who are truly suffering from old wounds, even new wounds, but you know, most of the time we carry around old wounds that we just haven't been able to process or we weren't given the proper environment to, to heal from. To give people who are suffering like that an opportunity to hear something different, to get the fullness of the message, the fullness of the truth that Jesus has for us. I, I describe it as all the gifts in the basket that Jesus is giving us, not just some of them but all of them. The secular world can't give that to you. They're going to get you to a certain point and then they're going to leave out God. And, you know, what I what I share with people is in particular with my wound, you know, when I was raped, there were two people involved in that rape. I, there was the offender and there was me. And the fullness of uh, of forgiveness is the person who was offended and the person who offended them you know, their hearts both being reconciled to God. That's the goal. That's what God wants. And again, it's a part of that human dignity that I was speaking about earlier. Once, once you realize God loves you this much, yes, this person did them a horrific, you know, evil thing, but God still loves them too, just as much. And he still wants that person to re- to be reconciled to him as well. You know know who you remind me
0: of when you speak when you're speaking this way, although I'm not I'm familiar with her story, but it it just she comes to my mind is uh, that famous St. Maria Goretti. Yes. Who was who forgave her basically her murder in that case because he raped and he murdered her and uh, that and you know people listen to that and they go, that's not possible. It is not possible. And I have to say that I wonder sometimes, is it possible to forgive someone who could behave so horrifically? my my initial reaction is always no. right but that's that's the whole point of what we're talking about is and, and I want to add one more thing before we close because we started with one quote, And I want to add with another quote because it fits in just perfectly to what we're ending with. And that is from St. Teresa of Calcutta. I have found the paradox that if I love until it hurts, then there is not hurt, but only more love. That is profound. And that's essentially what this is all about. Absolutely. I definitely want to thank you for this marvelous it's almost an hour, not quite, uh, but uh, we'll see what it is when I cut it down. <laughs> <laughs> Get rid of our ums and our you knows. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I thank wonderful. you so much, Jess. This was a really one of my, I have had a lot of favorite interviews, but this has been one of <laughs> my favorites. Uh, I've been doing this since May, and what I'm finding is The uh, extraordinary, I I really like doing the interviews better than talking myself because I get so much more out of it. I'm learning so much about other people's stories. I've always, I'm a big journaler and I've always read other people's journals (laughs) and I've always been in search of, of what makes a person unique. And every time I read one or I hear a story, I am amazed by the individuality that God provides for each of us. Yes. I sometimes lose it. I sometimes forget about it. Sometimes I get indifferent to it. But when I do something like this, I, I feel it strongly again. So mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Ordinary Old Catholic Me with Jess Echeverry and that you will join her on her website and perhaps go to her six-part series, And come back next week to listen to this show. Thanks, and have a good week.